Thank you for welcoming me. Yeah. Can I just see hands of um, people who are have had um, uh, contact with uh, Theravadan monks or nuns? And how many of you have, I know the two of you have known nuns. Have you known nuns or just monks? Uh, Both, yeah, okay. So, so three in this group, yeah. So just by way of introduction, this little introductory chant is part of the... What's that? Okay, four. <laughs> four. Um, is a way of um, highlighting that, uh, for myself, that this time of, of offering the Dhamma is, is quite a bit different than hanging out on the street and chit-chatting, you know, in the coffee shop. And the idea is, is that it's meant also to be a signal for you as well. So when you hear this introductory chanting before a Dhamma offering, it's an invitation to um, sit in a way where your posture is relaxed and aligned and your attention is very much dwelling inwardly. So rather than focus your attention on me and what I'm saying, if your attention is focused on your internal body sense, then that's the best way that you will be able to register and listen and be able to know if what you're hearing is something that resonates as true. And if it resonates as true, you'll know because the body, when it hears something that's true, it often has this kind of opening, relaxing, easeful feeling. And when you hear something that you know is very much not true, it sometimes tightens or contracts or gives you some signal. So your body sense will indicate for you whether to listen to what I'm saying because it's resonating with a truth that you can know for yourself. Now, when the body contracts, there's an interesting point in that because sometimes it's because there's a lot of clarity that this is not true and sometimes because it's landing into our resistances to explore something that's true and a little bit threatening. And so then we need to have a discernment about when the contraction is indicating our own resistance, which then requires investigation, or when what we are investigating or touching is something that is in discord with what we know to be true and we need to leave it alone. And, you know, I have my developed my own ways of discerning that, but that's a, a process. So when you hear that chanting, the invitation is to listen in this kind of a way. And so the request is not to believe a single word that I say, but to come into full relationship with your own internal experience and use that as a sounding board to know whether what you hear is resonant with your own truth and worthy of further contemplation, investigation, and consideration. And because I speak extemporaneously, there are times when I go off 
and into my own personal whatevers and to know not to take on any of that. Yeah. And hopefully that's not going to happen. But if it does, to just register that that's not stuff to take up or take on. Yeah. So the topic of this evening's talk is the union of wisdom and compassion. And I want to start with a personal story. I started meditating in 1979 at the ripe old age of 17 and was absolutely hell-bent and determined on getting enlightened. It was the only thing in my world that had any real relevance and meaning, and I was determined. And all of my wishes, my energy, my life force was in that direction. And, you know, as silly as it sounds, I remember that was my birthday wish on the birthday cakes for, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, I don't know how many years, many, many years. And eventually I found myself in a monastery, and I was still held out to determine, you know. And then things happened, and the situation was such that I ended up spending a number of years outside of the monastery in the bush in Australia. And just before I left to go to Australia, a number of things happened. And one of the things that happened was that I began to become aware that this absolute incredible determination was not serving me, and it was not serving the people around me. There was a trail of chaos and suffering that ensued with this determination. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying hard enough, and it wasn't that I needed to try harder. What was needed was another approach. And so I had taken on board the classical Theravadan framework of just let me get the hell out of here, you know, and get free. And then when I'm free, then there'll be a lot of clarity that will come and I'll be able to bring that to everything. And there was some kind of an insight to recognize this is no longer serving me. I need something else. And so with a lot of variety of things that spontaneously arose at a similar time, I decided to take the Bodhisattva vows and to shift the focus of my practice from getting out of suffering to touching and embracing it. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama was giving uh, Bodhisattva vows in Los Angeles in the year 2000, and I and a whole busload of monastics went down, and many of us took the Bodhisattva vows. And it had a huge impact on my system. So I was in the bush in Australia, and I had never been to Australia before, and I didn't know people there. And I love nature. I feel very much at home in nature, but Australia is, like, wild, you know. You know, and the sky is different, and the toilets flush backwards, and the snakes, there's the most poisonous snakes in the world that were on the land where I was. And, you know, I was like, you know, frightened. I was apprehensive. And so, you know, it was, it was scary for me to walk off of the path. And then I began to feel the earth and feel the welcome of the land and feel the joy of that. And so the welcome of the land and the joy of feeling embraced in that kind of a way helped me get a little bit more confident and I started to explore and go off paths and learn more about the creatures and the nature and stuff like that. So I was doing a kind of crazy practice. It was tiger practice. Have you ever heard of that? It comes from the Korean tradition. The Korean tradition are ferocious in their determination. They just love really strong determination practices. 
So tiger practice is to determine a certain length of time, a week, ten days, a month, three months, and you do um, you don't sit down, you don't lie down, and you don't sleep. So you intentionally are not sleeping, okay? And and so um, I decided I was going to do this practice, and there was another Korean nun who was there, and. And so, you know, we're up at all these weird hours all the time. And there was this ant hill that was right outside the meditation hall. So I was observing the ants. And notice that the ant hill kind of like spilled over onto the people path. So the path going up to the meditation hall was right there. So being born in Los Angeles, I might be a nature girl at heart, but I was a city girl by experience. So I had the bright idea that only a city girl would have to take a broom and brush the bottom of the anthill and gently encourage them to move. Okay? So I took out the brush and I was brushing the base of the anthill. And what would happen? Of course, the anthill goes on red alert and all ten gazillion of them come charging at me with an eat and destroy mission. All right? So... I'm not stupid. I realized the error of my ways, and I put the broom back against the meditation hall, which was like six feet away from the anthill, and decided that I needed to bring some metta. So this is also the stupidity of somebody born in L.A. to think that I could walk back into a charging anthill and bring them metta. So I put the broom against the, against the building, walked back into a charging anthill with a different intention bring them metta, and not a single ant bit me. And then I realized what I'd done. And I realized what they had done, and I realized what had happened, that they actually got it. That my intention to sweep was totally different than the intention to bring metta. And not one of them bit me. And I was totally blown away. The ants, this big, were able to know the difference. There's another kind of ant. So in Australia, there's gazillion ants. There's 10,000 ants in the world, and I think like 90% of them live in Australia. And there's another ant that's about this big, and it's got pitchforks for prongs, and it injects this poison into your body wherever it can grab hold of you. And if it does, it's like major sensation. (laughs) Burning pain for a week solid, followed by unimaginable itch for another week solid. Okay, And it swells up to the size of half of a golf ball, and it's like noticeable, right? So everybody knows these guys. They're called bull ants. And it doesn't matter if you're four feet or five feet or six feet or ten feet. They will bite you, and you step out of their way, all right, because they are territorial and aggressive. So I was living in a tiny little hut in a canyon in this national park, and I had a Cadillac walking path in front of my cootie that was like 80 feet long out of the most softest, silkiest sand imaginable with this spectacular view with nothing in sight other than perfect, beautiful nature. And this bull ant's nest was on a path that was connected to my path. Okay, and it was it was so it was a four feet away from a path that I had to traverse regularly to get down to where the food was offered in the library and the meditation hall. On my path, they would come regularly on forays to see if they can get bugs and insects and drag them back to their nest. 
And on their path, I would step out of their way because that was their path and I knew it. And I knew if I didn't step out of their way, I was up for two weeks of intense sensation. On my path, I walked barefoot and with my eyes closed, morning, noon, and night. They stayed out of my way. On their path, I had to stay out of their way. This is an ant. The difference is 16 feet between their path and my path, and they totally knew their path, and I totally knew their path, and they totally knew my path, and I totally felt safe. That was my path. And I thought, holy moly, this is an ant. What happens? What would happen if rather than give respect to those who I felt were worthy of respect, I lived with respect as simply a matter of course? What would that be like? The ants can do this. Can I? Can I do that? So the combination of the Bodhisattva vows and the teachings with the ants radically transformed my practice. And rather than try and make kind of like a road march to Nibbana, there was a willingness to meet what was arising with respect. And the welcome of the land held and embraced me and supported me meeting what arose with respect and I was amazed by what happened the layers that I had access to that I'd never seen before after 20 years of meditation had never touched and as I began to settle more and more and more in the land I began to feel a shift happen so initially I felt like you know a foreigner in a foreign land and then I felt a welcomed foreigner in a foreign land. And then I felt like I was part of family, you know, that the nature was like an extension of my family. And then I began to feel that there was just nature. There was just nature. There wasn't outside nature and inside nature, me nature and it nature. There was just nature. It was all just nature that was just arising and known and seen and then dissolving again. And as I began to experience this, I began to see there was no separation or there was no limitation to where compassion flowed. Everything belonged. And as everything belonged outwardly, everything belonged inwardly. As everything belonged inwardly, everything belonged outwardly. There was no separation. There was just nature. And this incredible feeling of wanting to take care. Compassion is both the path and the goal of practice. It's the way we get to where we want to go, and it's the result of practicing. The willingness to meet what's arising with care and compassion, whether it's in ourselves, in each other, in the people that we know and we love, or the ones who are total strangers. Wisdom 
is the capacity to see clearly and know what's arising and respond appropriately. And these two are so intertwined. The more we see clearly, the more empty we are of preconceptions and ideas or attachments of who we think we are, the more compassion flows. The more compassion flows, the more it opens up the possibility for seeing things clearly and responding appropriately. They're dovetailed. Characters classically, you know, the the description of wisdom is described as the ability to understand and recognize the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering. How we experience it in our lives, where we experience it in our lives. What does it feel like? To begin to allow attention to move towards the cause of suffering. In our worlds, we are habituated to finding blame outside. We are in a blame society that loves to focus blame outwardly. The second noble truth is about the cause of suffering, which has to do with our relationship with suffering, how we are relating to it. Now, this is not to trivialize or dismiss the kinds of oppression that we experience in the world and the need to take stands and move out of that. It's not about that. But what it is, is about our relationship with what is arising. So the cause of suffering is the inability to accept what is there. The deliberate intention to ignore what is there, to avoid what is there, or to contract away from it, or to grab onto it. That's the cause. And when we can see the cause, then right precisely exactly where the suffering arises is where it ends. And it doesn't end necessarily because the circumstance changes. It ends because there ceases to be an attachment and a grasping and a pushing and avoiding and a not wanting to know. The relationship shifts rather than the thing itself. And we can see that in simple ways. You know, we get colds and we're miserable and we fight and we feel like, oh, damn it, you know, I shouldn't be sick. And then we realize that the fight is making us much more miserable than the actual cold. And so when we give up the fight and just attend to the cold, yeah, we can be snotty and shivery and fevery, but that is a physical experience. It's not a mental one. And the mental one is where we suffer. So there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a cessation of suffering, and there's the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And the path brings together the conditions that are needed 
in order to continue to see things clearly and let go of wanting it to be otherwise. But compassion does not sit back and disassociate. It stays present and attentive and engaged, responsive, connected. It meets what is there. Wisdom discerns what action is needed. And the two dovetail. The more empty we are, the more clearly we see things without attachment, the more it's possible to act from a place of compassion that's unbounded, that's unhindered, that's un... beyond grasp. The more we are identified, the more we are contracted, the more we are not seeing things clearly, then the (coughs) limits of our compassion are defined by that. So my experience in the bush was very powerful and the experience with the ants was unbelievably profound. And so they were part of a long series of learning of how nature can teach me about my own heart and body and mind. I mean, I grew up where an ant was just an ant. Who cares about an ant? You know, just an ant. You know, they come into the house, you just sweep them up and get them rid of them. They're just ants. The bush taught me something different. And because they taught me different, then I began to respond to myself with that kind of care and compassion which I didn't know how to do before. And as I brought that kind of care and compassion to myself, I had access to stuff I had never seen before, which was very humbling, but also very freeing, because you lift the lids off of stuff and things, the prisoners of the heart, can come into the sunlight and do what they need to do go where they need to go you don't have to carry them any longer now I'm a practitioner I'm not a scholar so I can't map out how all of these things relate to each other in some kind of a you know, systemic or systematic map. But I know from a place of practice, I trust it. I can say that. That it works. That I trust it. That I know that it works.
one of the things that I heard which made my blood curdle was in the tsunami that happened in what year was that? 2007? Yeah. Some friends went to go to um, help with some of the places where there was so much um, devastation, death and destruction. And they heard a story. Anyway, there was a, there was a, because of the, of the way that the tsunami affected um, lands, there were some people that were isolated and they were cut off from fresh water and medicine and access to roads because of, of what had happened. And so there was one group of people who had been isolated in this way and without basic needs. And a, a truck arrived with supplies, fresh water and medicine and clothes and food. And they hadn't had any contact with anybody in two weeks or however long it was. And the people were, I don't know what they were, Hindu? I don't know what they were. They had a shrine and they were completely committed to their faith and they were very comfortable and confident in that faith. And the people driving the truck were of a different faith. And they told the village people that, you know, um, they wanted them to convert to their faith. And the village people were quite content with their own faith. They had no need to change faiths. So the people in the truck got in the car and drove away. And I thought, you know, if religion or practice does this to people, then who needs it? You know, if what it does is makes us so narrow that we cannot respond to the human suffering of somebody else, what use is this doing? You know, how on earth is this actually serving people? So, do you, do you know Marshall Rosenberg and Nonviolent Communication? Yeah, I think his his daughter and his granddaughter live in Boulder. Yeah. Anyway, I was on a field trip and went to go talk to him, and I'm slightly tongue-in-cheek. I said to him, you know, you know, I'm interested in starting a nonviolent monastery. That's all I said. And this ushered forth this, this thing that he said that there had been a, a kind of, some kind of a test that had been done where there were people from religions across the board who'd been handed some kind of a, of a, of a way of testing across the board, all of the major religions. And they gathered up the responses and somehow tallied them. And I don't, never looked up the test, so I don't know how scientifically rigorous it was. But what they found was is that across the board, all people who had a faith scored significantly less on the compassion test than people who had no faith that they were identified with. And every group of people who had a faith, there was a very small minority of people in each faith who scored orders of magnitude higher on the compassion test. And I thought, my goodness, this is very interesting. And having lived through some of the things that I've lived through now, I can see a little bit why this can happen even without having actually looked into the analysis of the test to see whether it was rigorous or not. Because our need to belong 
to a group is so strong that sometimes what happens is it overshadows our capacity to relate to each other as human beings and respond from a simple place of care and respect and compassion. And I thought to myself, I know which group I want to be part of. How can I practice and what do I need to do to assure that? So I will leave this reflection with you and as I started in the beginning encourage or ask that you not believe a single word that I've said but listen inwardly to your own felt sense of what resonates is true and respect that inquire deeply into that investigate that honor that take that up And with the stuff that resonates or clearly is not true, leave it. But with the stuff where you can't tell whether it's not true or it's your own resistance, maybe some more investigation might be in order. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.